0: Like Paul mentioned, I got to do a, a seminary project on the Sermon on the Mount, and I do pray that you will bear with me as I try to rehash this so that it's not just an intellectual project, but is something that will benefit your souls. If you would uh, please stand for the reading of God's word. I'll be starting in verse 17 of chapter 4, and then just reading through the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray for your work uh, by your Spirit as we dig into this this morning. I pray that our hearts would be refreshed and that we would be conformed more and more into the image of your Son as we grow in love with you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Sometimes we get invitations in the mail or even by word of mouth to come to some kind of event, whether it's a barbecue or a birthday party, perhaps a wedding or a graduation. All of those have come by my way sometime. Sometimes there are different kinds of invitations that you're not exactly sure how to respond to. Perhaps there's some awkwardness in a relationship um, and you're weighing whether or not it would be a good idea if this is an opportunity to pursue that or whatever. Perhaps a more poignant type of invitation is the type of invitation in which you are asked or you're asking somebody to be your spouse. If if you think about it, it really is an invitation. It's an invitation to enjoy life with a certain person for the rest of your life. And it's an invitation that will affect the rest of your life. The question that comes before us in this text is, is a decision about whether or not you will accept the call of Jesus Christ to follow him and be his disciple. All of Matthew's sermon essentially acts as an invitation to discipleship, and we want to make sure that we understand the significance of that question and of that invitation because Jesus is King of kings, he is Lord of lords, he is God in the flesh. And our response to his invitation is the most important response we could ever make, because it has to do with our eternity. Matthew's gospel highlights different contrasting responses to Jesus and his invitation for people to follow him. And he records what's most likely the most famous sermon that anybody has ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. This sermon is an invitation to be his disciple, and it's not an invitation that any of us can ignore. The big idea about this message this this morning is that Jesus invites you to be his disciple so that you may flourish and be a faithful witness. Jesus is inviting you to be his disciple. Even if you're already his disciple, he's always inviting you to follow me, be my disciple, so that you may flourish and be a faithful witness. What does that look like? Being a faithful witness begins with knowing the master. We have to know who Jesus is. We have to know his story. Being a faithful witness looks forward to a future reward. And being a faithful witness accepts the full role of what being a disciple means. So first, being a faithful witness begins with knowing the master and his story. Knowing the master, knowing Jesus from Matthew helps us understand Matthew's purposes, Matthew's purposes and how he writes, also helps us understand who the master is. First, God reveals himself in Christ. This is one of Matthew's main points. He tells us that when Jesus is born, he is given the name Emmanuel, which means, literally, God with us. Jesus heals sicknesses. He raises the dead. He forgives sin, something that people say Who is this who forgives sins? Or only God can do that. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He who made the Sabbath is Lord of the Sabbath. These are just a few examples. The second thing that Matthew does is that the revelation of Christ, the invitation of who Christ is to people, separates people into two different camps. Those who are wise, those who are foolish. The sheep and the goats, the parables of the weeds, Pulls this out, the parable of the net full of fish where there's separating the good from the bad. Matthew works through all of this to show there's two different types of responses. A third thing that Matthew does is that he shows that the end of the ages has dawned with the appearance of Jesus Christ. His resurrection and the Great Commission point to the inauguration of what we call the new covenant. Fourth, the people of God are defined anew. In Matthew's gospel. Those who enter the kingdom of God is not just based on national descent, but it's based on their response specifically to who Jesus is. For all of these purposes, Matthew is inviting us to be his disciples, to be disciples of Jesus Christ. Some have referred to Matthew's gospel as a discipleship manual for the king, and that's a pretty good summary statement. Just to give us some context, Matthew's structure as a whole, the first four, four chapters, first three and a half chapters are essentially the beginnings and origin stories about who Jesus is. They set up the story. And then from 423 through most of, or all through chapter 25, we have five discourses that are followed by narratives. Those narratives have to do with the discourse material. So first, we have the Sermon on the Mount as the first discourse. The next one is in chapter 10 with mission and witness, essentially, as a theme. Chapter 13, we have a discourse that's full of parables that show that separation stuff. Chapter 18 is a discourse, essentially, on what the church will be. And 23 through 25 are a long discourse on the coming judgment. And then the final chapters, all of this is leading up to the final chapters of Matthew's gospel, which is Jesus' arrest, his trial, his death, his resurrection, and then his commission to his disciples. That is the climax of the story. Everything is leading up to that point, which ushers in the new covenant. Jesus is introduced through his human origins. His Abrahamic and Davidic line are highlighted, and this is to show that he is the king of kings. Abraham was promised that there would be kings coming from his line, David has promised that there will be a king. This king finally comes in Jesus Christ. He's recognized by Gentiles as the Messiah, which is a really common thing that Matthew points out. Everything that Matthew does, he works to show that what Jesus accomplishes, what Jesus says and does, are a fulfillment of Old Testament types and patterns and prophecy. And what this means is that people, events, customs, they all find their completion their meaning, their fullness. Everything that we see of those things in the Old Testament find their completion and their end in Jesus Christ. An example is in, in Matthew 2.15. Matthew quotes Hosea 11.1, 1, which if you go back and look at Hosea 11.1, 1, it's not a prediction. It's looking back at Egypt's withdrawal out of Israel, or of e- e- Israel's exodus from, from Egypt. Another one is uh, Matthew four. 1 and 2, where Jesus is sent into the wilderness. This passage alludes to both Adam and Israel. Israel is alluded to through the reference to the wilderness. Adam is alluded to in the temptation by the devil. And there's some crossover there as well. In both cases, though, Jesus is shown to be what God required in which the former failed. So he is shown to be divine in origin as well. Like I said, he's born, given the name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. In Matthew 2.6, Matthew references Micah 5.2, which reads, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. There's an eternal pre-existence for Jesus. Jesus begins his public ministry in Matthew 4.12 after his temptations, and he immediately preaches Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then he calls his first disciples. He calls them to follow him. His calling draws many crowds. Jesus' ministry is one long call to discipleship, one long call saying, follow me. And he's asking them, he's urging them, he's exhorting them to learn from him. How to live as citizens of the kingdom that he is bringing about. All of this follows the fulfillment motif. As we get into Matthew 5, where most of our Bibles mark the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes up on the mountain. And this is a key narrative point that Matthew wants his probably Jewish, primarily Jewish audiences to pick up on. In the Old Testament that was translated into Greek, the way that it says that Moses went up to meet with God in Exodus 19 is that using the same word, if he went up on the mountain. If you turn to Exodus 19 for a moment, we can take a look at some of these key factors. I promise we'll get to Matthew in a minute. So in Exodus 19 too, The Israelites, they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. So right there, Moses went up to God. That's Moses went up the mountain as it was translated in Greek. Which is what Matthew copies purposefully in Matthew five one. Again, continuing on, uh, the Lord called out to him on the mountain saying thus he shall say to the house of Jacob and teach the people of Israel so Moses is given words for, from God to speak to the people Moses that defines Moses as a prophet he spoke to the people on behalf of the Lord he called people to allegiance to Yahweh in verse 5 of Exodus 19 if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant follow me is essentially what he's saying and what's the result of their obedience they will be a treasured possession Jesus makes the remarkable claim in the sermon that listening to and obeying his words, this is different than any other prophet, listening and responding to Jesus' words and his words makes them eligible for the kingdom. In Exodus 19, again, Moses also relays that they will be a kingdom of priests. I want you to keep your thought, that thought in your minds. We're going to come back to that soon. But lastly here in Exodus 19 is Exodus 20 in which the Ten Commandments are delivered. The remainder of Matthew 5, from verse 17, well, we'll get to next week, Lord willing. The rest of chapter 5 covers, essentially, an exposition of the law. What we need to see is that Matthew is setting Jesus up as a new Moses. He's the fulfillment of Moses, especially thinking of the promises of raising up a prophet like Moses that we see in Deuteronomy 18, there it says, Moses, Moses records, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, and it is to him you shall listen. Jesus is pictured as a new Moses here. Yet he's greater than Moses because he's divine. It's not that he received the law from God. He delivered it as his own. Just a moment ago, I mentioned that he didn't warn, as the prophets do, against rejecting the word of the Lord, but against rejecting his own words. The closing words of the sermon in Matthew seven twenty four and on illustrate this very, very clearly. And as the new and greater Moses, the new and greater prophet, the new and greater king, the one who is God incarnate, it is necessary that we learn who this Jesus is, for it's a matter of knowing who God is and how we're to follow him. And as Matthew writes this, he is emphasizing Jesus' role and identity so that you would understand how important it is that you listen to him. Now, why is all of this relevant? Why am I covering all this material? It's really important because this is how Matthew is telling the story. Matthew's telling us how to understand Jesus by helping us understand the Old Testament. And as in turn, this is how Matthew gets us to know Jesus. Luke records the relevance of these connections to the Old Testament in his account when Jesus appears to in his resurrected state to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he says to those disciples, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It's important this is because knowing Christ is the only way to know God. John makes this clear in his gospel in John 1 18. John writes that Jesus is the explanation of the Father. And in John 14, he says, I am the only way to the Father. I am the way and the truth of the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's asked, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And he's, he responds by saying, Don't, haven't you known me? If you know me, you know the Father. Knowing Christ is knowing God. I'm going to assault you for just a second with a pop culture analogy. If you've ever seen a movie that's part of a series, like a trilogy, and you don't see the first one, you're kind of, like, missing some of the big picture. Like, consider Star Wars. Some people hate Star Wars, some people love Star Wars, but if you haven't seen the original trilogy that came out in the 70s and 80s and you start to watch the other ones, you really have no idea what's going on. And you really don't understand how bad the prequels were. (laughs) Or more recently, with the Marvel movies, many of them stand alone well, but if you watch the first, first one you watched was from the past three or four years, you may enjoy the movie well enough, but you're really missing so much of the story that you have no idea what's going on. Now, just like having to know some backstory for some of these movies is important so that you can understand the story, it is really important for us to understand who Jesus is by getting the backstory. And that's why this stuff is important. And it's extremely helpful for you to know and be familiar with what God has been doing and revealing in Christ himself. The implications of this is pretty straightforward. In order for us to have a growing and greater understanding of Jesus, in order for us to have our faith renewed and restored and rooted in who he really is, in order for us to marvel at the wonders of all that Jesus did and said, we need to be diligent students of our Bibles. We need to be diligent students of Scripture so that we can know Christ better and as a result, to know how to follow him better. It'd also be a good idea to read some good books that the whole Bible is about, books on biblical theology. I can give you some recommendations. Um, maybe I'll mail those, email those out uh, later tonight. But one of the best ways... To grow in your understanding of the Bible is to read through the Bible, especially with somebody else. Pay attention to how a book is laid out, what themes are being emphasized, key terms and events that are referenced, and what all of this is alluding to and how those things lead to Christ. This is how we grow in knowing the master and his story, so that we would be faithful witnesses of Jesus and and being faithful disciples. So the second point, actually getting to Matthew, is that being a faithful witness looks, promise, looks forward to the promised reward. Being a faithful witness looks to the promised reward. As we get into the sermon itself, we should take a brief look of the structure of the sermon. So all of, five, of 3 through 16 of chapter 5 is the introduction to the sermon. It essentially sets the stage of where it's going. And then the body of the sermon is in 517 through 712. The purpose statement for the body and purpose statement for the whole sermon is found in verses 17 through 20. Matthew 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. This is very important for us to understand that he has come to fulfill the law, and he is not doing away with the law, at least not in the way that some people might think. And then 520, also a very key point, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a really high bar. We have to understand what he means by that, because he doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect people in the sense of sinlessness. That is not what he's talking about. And we'll get to that next week. And then the conclusion and call for responses from 7.13 to the end. Matthew uses threes a lot. This says is, there isn't anything necessarily special about threes, but the patterns make Matthew's gospel and the sermon easy to remember. It's an important feature when most people don't have audio recordings or copies of their own Bibles. These patterns of threes are pretty easy to spot. There's overlap with them as well. There's three sets of three Beatitudes, three references to you and as the intro closes, which overlaps with the Beatitudes. There's two sets of three applications of the law, two sets of three that deal with reward, and so on. You can see all these threes. The common thread in all of what we have in Matthew, though, is a really high demand, and there's a high demand in the Sermon on the Mount. It's best understood, probably, as an invitation to wholeness, as image bearers of God. That's probably the best way that we can think about that, is he's calling us to be whole people, to be complete people. It's It's one way of Matthew calling us to to a right way of living in a fallen world. The life of discipleship is a life of learning Christ. So when he comes to the end of chapter 5, he says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This echoes the call that God gave Israel that you must be holy because I am holy. This leads to what is called... uh, known as a Christian virtue ethic, where the way that we live has more to do with who we are than what we do. What, what Matthew is bringing us to, what the Sermon on the Mount is bringing us to, is to a certain kind of personhood. And his demand, though it's high, is something that we can strive for because he has given us his spirit. And the righteousness that he speaks of isn't necessarily the same righteousness that we think of when we read Paul. Paul. Paul spoke of an imputed righteousness, the saving righteousness of Christ, the righteousness that we're clothed with that regenerates us from the inside. That's not the way necessarily the term is used here. In order for us to have a righteousness that's greater than the scribes of Pharisees, he's talking about that worked out righteousness that stems from being a follower of Jesus Christ. It's a whole person status, not moral perfectionism, but the goal is something that we strive for. So what, Brit, what brings us to the beginning of the sermon is this invitation to seek a blessed life, a life that will result in this wholeness and a life that will result in this greater righteousness. So the sermon opens with nine Beatitudes. We're finally getting into it. Nine Beatitudes. Is it three, three, and three? Four, four, and one? You may notice that there's two sections that have blessed are the persecuted the point is, is that Matthew uses these patterns of threes just to make them memorable. And that last one transitions to the, the final section we'll look at tonight. The first question we need to answer, though, is what does it mean to be blessed? Now, various ways this word is translated is happy. It's translated as fortunate. Uh, one author has translated as flourishing. We What we need to do to help us understand what's going on here is to distinguish a blessing from a blessed person. One way the word blessed is used is as a blessing from God to promote or even from others that promotes or calls on God's blessing for their good. Like in the Old Testament, God blessed Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply. This blessing came to Noah, It came to Abraham, the idea of the vertical relationship is what is going on with that kind of uh, blessing. Or it's a, a eulogy or a praise or a petition when we bless God. Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The other use the uses, that is used here, which is some kind, sometimes called a macarism, that's from the Greek word, is a blessed position in life. This is the horizontal relationship. When people, when it's applied to people, you know, blessed persons, it's kind of thinking of, uh, you know, look at that guy. I want to be like that guy. It's really characteristic of wisdom literature. Psalm 1 is a prime example. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. This kind of blessing shows a kind of a contrast. Psalm 32, two: blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Proverbs 3.13, blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. Proverbs 28.14, blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. So the blessings that are used here in the sermon fall into that category of, of separation, of showing two kinds of ways to be. The opposite of, a, of the blessing in this sense is a woe. Luke, show, Luke 6, in his um, version of, of this sermon, shows the relationship between the blessing and the woe, as opposed to blessing and cursing. So the cursing had to do with disobedience to God's commands. Woes have to do with not living in a way that would be flourishing for you. And there is an important distinction, but there's also overlap. And when we get into the blessings in Matthew, they're not often what people would think of as a blessing. These blessings, these beatitudes, these blesseds, often hit us in places where if we look at them and didn't see the rest of it, we would wonder, how is that blessed? Who are the blessed? These are all pretty negative images. We're looking at people that are living in a state that does not seem all that appealing. The first one, poor in spirit. Well, this is, goes every, against every grain of American individualism, of which we're saying, I'm not self-sufficient. I'm dependent. I'm in need. It's a recognition of spiritual depravity. It's spiritual bankruptcy. It's a confession that I can achieve nothing. Psalm 51 is a perfect example of this poorness of spirit. Psalm 51, verses 1 and 2 says, I have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. This psalm records what is the poor in spirit because he knows that he can only be washed from the outside. The second one is those who mourn. What are they mourning about? They're mourning about sin. They're mourning about the brokenness of their own sin. They're mourning over the sin that's around them. For Israel, for those that went into exile, those who were recognized as cognizant or those who were cognizant of God's judgment recognized the corporate and individual sin was responsible for where they're at. In Nehemiah 9, he records a corporate prayer that reflects this. He writes, Our kings... Our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruits and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. It's a mourning over the sin that's around them. Likewise, the psalmist testifies in Psalm 119, 136, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. It's the attitude a church should have when some of its members are in deep, unrepentant sin, such as Paul exhorts in 1 Corinthians 5.2. They have sexual immorality in their church. He says, are you, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? The third one is meek. Meekness was considered a negative quality in the Greco-woman world. It was associated with servility. Meekness is often compared to gentleness and self-control. It holds back from vengeance. The meek not only recognize their own poorness of spirit, but they have a gentle attitude when someone points it out to them. The fourth one is hungry and thirsty for righteousness. So like poor in spirit... The person is spiritually needy, but the language of hunger and thirst really digs in at the need sense of it, a vivid expression of a desire. We really don't know what it's like to be really hungry. When, When we know that we're completely dependent on someone else to have a meal, we know that satisfaction will only come from the help of someone else. The beggar on the street knows that he needs the charity of others. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are hungering and thirsting for God himself. Psalm 42.2 writes, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. In Psalm 63.1, O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Have you been so thirsty that you couldn't think of anything else but to get your next drink of water? And is that how your soul searches after God? The fifth one is merciful. How is this negative? Well, you're wronged, and you don't seek vengeance. It embraces forgiveness for the guilty and compassion for the suffering and needy. It's a character quality that voids all self-interest. And it can be costly because you're giving up your right to be righted. Matthew hones in on this very quality several times in this gospel as a key trait for his people. Matthew records Jesus saying in Matthew 9, 13, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18 shows very clearly how important it is for us to have mercy on others who have sinned, the sixth one is pure in heart. This one might not look negative at first glance, but for any person who has sinned that they cherish knows that it 's no easy task it 's no walk in the park to do away with it. It requires discipline. it requires a wartime attitude against our flesh. Purity refers to both inner, moral purity and single minded devotion. Psalm 24, 3 through 4, probably is alluded to in this. It says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. You don't get to be duplicitous. You don't get to be double-minded, secretly pursuing selfish pleasures. Your devotion inside and out must be singular in order to have this blessedness. You don't get to have your cake and eat it too, in other words. The seventh one is peacemakers. Again, how is this negative? We've talked about previously the fact that there has to be some kind of conflict in order to have purity in our church. True peacemaking involves pointing out wrongs. It's not appeasement, but it's seeking reconciliation. This creates tension, which is hard. The ultimate peacemaking is brought about through the preaching of the gospel, Our aim as disciples is to bring people to be at peace with God. This was the cry of Isaiah in Isaiah 52.7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. It's a call for all believers in their personal relationships, Paul writes in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, which means you have to do all that you can, live peaceably with all. We know that it's costly because in order for God to make peace with us, he sent his son to die on the cross. The most cost was measured by that, and it brings hostility which leads us to the final blessings. The 8th and the ninth. Matthew records Jesus saying, blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are you when you are persecuted. Now this has its own obvious negative overtones. Those who uphold truth and righteousness will be hated. They will be oppressed. They will be ridiculed. It can look like anything from extreme hatred to just mockery. But either way, Those who follow him will be persecuted. They will face consequences in this world and in their relationships. And what's important to recognize is that Jesus does not ask his followers to do anything that he wasn't willing to do himself. He embodied all of these blessed attitudes. Their fulfillment, essentially, is in him. But what's key, what Matthew points us to, what Jesus points us to, is that these blessings— The negative nature of these blessings gets overcome by the promise of the future reward. The future realities. Beatitudes 1 and 8 end with theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These are the bookends, essentially the promises that form the cover of what's contained in this little book of blessings. Everything else that's in between them is inclusive, kind of like the fruit of the spirit is not considered the fruits of the spirit in Galatians 5, but one singular set of fruits. This is a set of blessedness that comes as a package deal. The first promise, again, is the expect expectation of the kingdom. The promise to Abraham when God called him was a promise that included kingship. It was defined for him as the land of Canaan, for the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God says, The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. This hearkened back to the command to Adam to fill the earth and have dominion. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the command that was repeated to Noah. The breadth of the kingdom of God is not just the land of Canaan, though. It's the whole earth. When Jesus returns, his rule will be set up in the New Jerusalem or Zion. Zion wherever that may be, whatever that may be, look like, but his jurisdiction is over all the earth, as his glory covers all of the earth. And all of his saints will share the rule with him. Daniel 7:27 says, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness and the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and his dominions shall serve and obey him. All nations will serve the king of kings. All saints will share this rule. And if you are poor in spirit, your poverty will be replaced by the riches of the kingdom. Mourners will be comforted. God draws near to the mourners. Isaiah 40, verse 1, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. This is right after 39 chapters of judgment. The Messiah, in Isaiah 61, 3, comes to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And on the last day, in Revelation seven seventeen, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Mourning over sin now points to that future reality when all sorts of mourning will be taken away. To those who are meek, those taken advantage of, they will inherit the earth, which is another reflection of the promise of the kingdom. Psalm 37 seems to be specifically alluded to here. Listen to this. For the evil doers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. And in verse 11, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. And again, in verse 29, the righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. Again, the land for Israel was Canaan. For us, when we look forward, when Christ returns, the new heaven, a new earth, that's formed for us to dwell with God forever. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. They will be given that internal righteousness. It's already been given to you now. The righteousness of the Lord Jesus, as we read earlier, is clothed on us. It's counted to us. Paul referred to the imputed righteousness that Abraham had when he believed God. What does the scripture say? Paul writes in Romans 4.3, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He continues later on, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us. Who believed in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. We will be given, we are given an internal righteousness and an external righteousness as well, a lived out righteousness. Romans 7 or 6 verses 17 to 18. But thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Ultimately, the hunger and thirst, that longing, that deep longing, when you're grieved over not only your own sin, but the sin that's in the world, will be removed because righteousness will reign, which is what we look forward to. Peter writes in Second Peter 3.13, but according to his promise, according to God's promise that righteousness was come, we will wait or we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. They will be the characteristic of the new world. The merciful will receive the mercy of God. They will experience the fullness of God's forgiveness. We experience that mercy now as we place our faith in Christ, yet it's a daily need. We're often tempted to feel shame. We find find reasons to hide away and fly away from God because of our sin. But when Christ returns, he will rid us of our corruption, and he will show us mercy and compassion every day. Our hearts will be healed and welcomed and comforted. This is the heart that God has towards those who seek him. The pure in heart, they will see God. In ancient times, it was a rare thing to be in the presence of any kind of nobility face-to-face. Even today, this is a pretty hard thing to do. You don't just get to get an audience with a national leader without going through some kind of long process, if you can even get there. When it comes to seeing God, the psalmist says in Psalm 24, 3-4, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. The purity of heart we seek is a gift from God as a new covenant promise. Ezekiel writes, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. Seeing God is the hope of every believer. It's called the beatific vision. And John describes it as follows in 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. There is a day coming when the pure in heart will see God face to face in the person of Jesus. Peacemakers will be called sons of God. We risk our relationships to bring peace, but we uh, have a relationship of sonship. Those who promote reconciliation will be like their Savior, the Son of God, who brought reconciliation between us and the Father. As peacemakers, we enjoy the adoption of sons and daughters. And we are sons and daughters who seek to promote the peace of God to people by calling them to repent and entrust themselves to God to enjoy the blessedness that Jesus promises. And lastly, those who are persecuted. Again, the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And they will have a great reward. Note in the text, it says that if you're persecuted for righteousness sake, in verse 10, and in verse 11, against you evil on my account. So Jesus is paralleling righteousness sake and, and persecution for the sake of Jesus' name. Those who speak, face persecution, those who are spoken evil falsely of, they have been identified by the world as God's people. The spirit of glory and of God rests upon them, as we read earlier. And Christ will acknowledge their name before his father. That's the reward, is that you will be acknowledged before God. We often fall back in shame and fear by not acknowledging God's name before others, but he will acknowledge our name before his Father. The prophets, they were rejected, but they looked forward to the future reward. Jesus is equating us here with that prophet. He's putting you as a disciple in the same line, as the prophets when you're persecuted because you are representing him. You're urging people to repentance. You moving people on to people uh, to bring, bring them closer to God and his glory. Your care for them will bring mocking and suffering. Jesus tells us, Jesus tells all of his disciples that there is a reward waiting. The nature of that reward is all that we just discussed with the Beatitudes. And most of all, it's the reward that we will know God's love upon us forever. This is the, the promise that we need to look forward to in order to endure these hard things. So the question you need to ask yourself is, do you wish to be a disciple of Jesus in such a way that you will face these negative circumstances? Are you ready to face the reality and live in it that you are spiritually destitute? Not in such a way that, you know, you wallow in it, but understanding that you have a complete need for Christ. Are you ready to pursue what Christ says will lead to your happiness? To true happiness, to true joy, to true fulfillment by understanding that, What we see in this world as negative really serves as we follow Christ to bring us a greater reward. Will you seek to what you think is best or will you seek what Jesus says is best? Will you trust that there is actually a reward waiting for you? And as you seek it, are you ready to face that persecution? Whatever that form may take. Are you going to look for that future reward? Are you going to trust that reward so much? Or will you turn away as you face difficulties? Will you turn his back on, or turn your back on him who shed his blood for you? Or will you take hold of that promise, that promise that he rewards, that he loves you, and follow him? If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ in a saving way, this is an important time for you. Jesus invites all who hear the message of his life, death, and resurrection to repent of living as the master of their own lives, the master of their own destinies. We need to turn away. You need to turn away and turn to the Lord. The judgment for your sin, which separates you from God, which makes you his enemy, which keeps you from having true peace, he's wiped that away on the crucifixion. He wiped that away in the person of Jesus Christ, who was God in the flesh. And your judgment has been absorbed by Jesus Christ. The Father has made the way for you to have peace with him, and you only have to entrust yourself to him and his promises in repentance and faith. If you have questions about that, don't leave here without talking to somebody. You can talk to me or Paul. Probably anyone in your row can help answer these questions. Just don't leave without getting those questions answered. So, so far we've seen that being a faithful witness requires us to know the master in a story. We've seen that a faithful witness looks to the future reward to overcome the fears of of denying self and facing persecution. And lastly, real quick, we'll look at how being a faithful witness means that we're accepting the full role of what it means to be a disciple. Being a faithful witness accepts the full role of being a disciple. Now, you may have noticed the last blessedness. I pointed this out earlier. Blessed are you when others revile you. This is a natural transition that Matthew makes to bring us to this last section of verses 13, 11 to 13, or 13 to 16. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. We see these two different analogies that Jesus pictures, and sometimes we have a trouble understanding exactly what he's talking about, especially with the salt. And if we take them together as a form of a parallelism, we can probably get a best, the best picture of what he's talking about. Salt has a huge amount of possibilities when we take it by itself. It's seen as observative. Um, some people have treated it like a, a symbol for purity or for loyalty or for peace or for wisdom, you know, whatever. Throw whatever you have at it, and that's what salt is talking about. But when we, when we do that, we're not paying attention to the context. In the context, he equates this, be salt of the earth, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, So there's two ideas here that make a lot of sense of what this is all saying. And this is really important. One is that salt is connected to the cutting of a covenant. In Leviticus 2.13, Moses writes, You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offering, you shall offer salt. So the offering was a priestly activity it's a covenant activity all the holy contributions that the people of Israel present to the Lord I give to you this is numbers 18 and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual due it is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord and for you and your for your offspring with you as you can see salt was used in cutting a covenant what that means is that the the arrangement the relational arrangement arrangements between God and man were established with the use of salt. then the inclusion of light helps us see the connection. Matthew often refers to Isaiah and a reference to light in Isaiah 9-2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of darkness, on them light has shone. Isaiah 42-6, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations. Covenant, light, this is what you are. Light is coming into the world. Light came into the world through Jesus. Now Jesus is calling us to be that light. So when you take salt and light in parallel, Jesus is saying something very significant, that his disciples are covenant ambassadors of the new covenant. His people are true workers for the kingdom. This is seen in in Matthew 18 where he tells Uh, The disciples, that whatever they bind on earth will be bound in heaven. There's that covenantal relationship stuff going on. The other understanding, and it's really tied to the covenant, is that Jesus' disciples are being called priests in the order of Jesus' priesthood. Which part of our role to be priests connects to 1 Peter, which highly reflects the Sermon on the Mount. Peter writes, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Salt is a priestly image because it was that key ingredient with sacrifices. So when Jesus is using salt and light, what he's telling his disciples, what he's telling you, is that you have been called to be priests of a new covenant that runs all the way to the Great Commission. There's a warning about shrinking back from it. There's real dangers of hiding your light or not having saltiness. And he, he says, if you've lost your saltiness or hidden your light, you're really useless. Why does he have this negative part here? He said that in verses 10 through 12, he said that being his disciples will re- result in persecution. This is a high call. The difficulty is real. And it makes it more and more tempting to draw back your light. It makes it more and more tempting to lose your saltiness as a covenant priest. Matthew makes it clear that we are to represent Christ. Jesus makes it clear that we're to represent him. He invites us to be his disciples, to enjoy fruitfulness and fullness and flourishing in our lives as we pursue the ultimate flourishing and happiness in the kingdom of heaven. And he invites us to that through the process of following him and serving him in such a way that we represent him to the world. It's a privilege. It's a joy, but it's hard and he knows it. So that's why he gives us the rewards. That's why he gives us the warnings. So how do we live this out? Well, Jesus tells us to let our light shine so that what? So that people can see our good works. Why do we see them? Why do we do them? Why do do we want people to see them? Not for our own glory, but for God's glory so that they may give glory to your father who is in heaven. We do good to one another. Just like we heard so many times in the past few months with Titus, we adorn the doctrine of God, our savior by doing good for one another. And that is how we represent our our role as priests to the world. As priests, we bring people to God himself. We do this by speaking the truth, the truth of God's word, the truth of the gospel to them. And we, like Jesus, need to be inviting people to enjoy that renewed fellowship and that renewed peace that only he can give us. But we need to be patient because people hate the light. So let your words be gracious, let your words be loving, pray for the Spirit to help you, not just so you would be a better Christian, but to know love, to love Christ, to represent Christ, to represent him to the people that you love. And our aim always is for God's glory. This is what we want to lead people to, to understand that enjoying God's glory, to enjoying God, is the greatest thing for them and is where true blessedness is found. This morning we've seen that being a faithful witness begins with knowing the master and his story. Second, we've seen a faithful witness looks to the future reward and the beatitudes, and third, we've seen that being a faithful witness accepts the full role of a disciple as priestly ambassadors. Jesus invites you, every single one of you, to be his disciple so that you would know the goodness and the blessedness of what it means to be a faithful witness to him. There needs to be something distinct about us. But we need to to follow through and live out the distinction with humility and with love. Jesus invites all who heard him to follow him. He invited the crowds. It wasn't just the disciples there that day. The crowds followed him, and he was making this proclamation to them, and he invites us, to find blessing in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. There's a lot here that can be challenging. There's a lot here that gives us hope. And I pray, Father, that your hope, the hope of your uh, peace, the hope of seeing you face to face, would drown out the fears of persecution, the fears of self-denial. There is a mission that you have called us to that is so much greater than ourselves. It is for your glory. I pray, Father, that you would help us all to live in such a way that finds enjoyment, defines true joy in what you have called us to be pleasures, and the pursuits of this world can tempt us. I, Father, pray. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see the vanity of the things that this world offers, to find true blessedness in pursuing your kingdom and your righteousness. In Christ's name, amen.